0: Welcome to the Unforgotten Families Podcast, an action oriented community of hope, inclusivity, and compassion for all medically fragile families. This podcast was created to spread awareness, share solutions, and advocate for the needs of these resilient individuals. It's our hope that the information and stories we share will inspire and empower you to join us in advocating for these families and help to ensure that they are never forgotten. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us for an episode of the Unforgotten Families podcast. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Curtis Sobush. Dr. Sobush is a board-certified pediatric pulmonologist with the SLU Care Physician Group practicing at SSM Health Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital in St. Louis. In his duties at Cardinal Glennon, Dr. Sobush serves as the medical director of the Complex Medical Care Program, a program aimed at coordinating care for children with medical complexity that serves over 320 patients. He also serves as a pulmonary consultant for children with medical complexity at Rankin-Jordan Pediatric Bridge Hospital and has been on their board of directors for over six years. He is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics for the St. Louis University School of Medicine and is a member of the St. Louis University Institutional Review Board, their Quality and Patient Safety Committee, and their Ethics Committee. He also serves as the Chair-elect for the Complex Care Committee for the American Academy for Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine. Dr. Solbush's goal in life is to optimize the quality of life for patients that have complex respiratory needs. We believe that it's important for you to understand the needs of these medically fragile children, and Dr. Sobush is someone who deeply understands and articulates these needs and will be sharing valuable information with all of us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sobush.
1: Sure, happy to do so and glad to be taking part in this great discussion.
0: Me too, I'm really excited to connect with you and you know, like we have talked about, the Unforgotten Families is here to advocate and champion for medically fragile children and their families and just wanting to create awareness for the complex needs that they have and trying to connect and communicate with people just to figure out solutions and talk about solutions and first and foremost, um, I would love to talk to you about your background, because when I see someone who's doing the work that you do with so much passion and purpose, I'm always interested in how and why you do what you do. And so if you were open for it, I would love to, you know, if you could share why you got into the medical field and specifically what led you into serving children with medical complexities.
1: Absolutely. So as a child, I was always intrigued by my father, who's a physical therapist by training and he was always working with uh, a variety of individuals through Marquette University in Milwaukee. Um, And it was sort of him that kind of drove me to kind of seeing how you can help a a population of people that have various needs and and other things along those lines. And and I saw how much joy it brought him on a day to day. So I think just with science being something that was easy for me, math being something that was easy for me, I, I wanted to get into something related to, something having to do with with math and science. And and I I loved the human interaction, at least that medicine provided. So it, it seemed like a natural fit. When I decided to enter into medical school, I had originally thought of doing hand surgery. And it was a very much a departure, at least going into pediatrics from that, at least with my initial intent. But it was largely because the first couple of rotations I had in my third year of medical school were really just focused on pediatrics. I did a a pediatrics rotation for eight weeks. I did pediatric neurology for four and I did pediatric plastic surgery for four. And so the bulk of my initial clinical interactions were in dealing with children, but also working with their families and seeing the neat dynamic that came with being playful with kids that were resilient and wanting to get better and dealing with families that had so much just, um, variation in terms of their background and their interests and their their stories and and having that that change just on the fly in a single clinic visit between being playful with a kid and then dealing with a concerned family caregiver that was that was what did it for me so i I decided to do pulmonology as a as a subspecialty training just because it was something that I just understood really well from a respiratory physiology standpoint and I, I like that I could have continuity of care with a number of patients that were in the field of pulmonology, whether it be cystic fibrosis or asthma. um, But ultimately, what wound up being my niche was really dealing with children that required home ventilation and um, tracheostomy-based care and and neuromuscular weakness. So that was was how I got into that particular niche of uh, my subspecialty. And from that, it was obvious that there was so many needs outside of just pulmono- you know, pulmonology and medicine even altogether that that warranted intervention. And that's why children with medical complexity became uh, a real interest of mine. And, and that's why I do what I do today.
0: That's something I would actually be interested in you sharing is a little bit about, you know, like when we say vent and trach, like, I totally understand that. Um, can you like paint a picture for someone that maybe doesn't know exactly what that looks like?
1: Absolutely. So all of us, uh, when we think about just our day-to-day needs, we we have a need to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide from our bodies. And um, there's various channels through our airways where we um, are allowed to do that. And we also have a a respiratory drive that is our brain telling our, our body to breathe a certain way. And so there can be impairments along any of those aspects where it becomes difficult to have that oxygen or CO2 types of gas exchange. And so with we when we see that that's impaired, we call that respiratory failure, and the treatment for that is to overcome that by providing ventilation support, oxygen support, um, and sometimes to deliver that reliably, we need to do that through a tracheostomy, where we have a, a surgically placed stoma or hole um, put into the the trachea part of the airway um, in the neck and that allows for us to more reliably deliver those those necessary gases to be exchanged. And so Mm. um, that becomes a a circumstance where there may be a child that's born with that need right there at time of delivery. Um, And we're seeing that more and more, at least as children are born with greater degrees of prematurity um, and surviving those um, challenges. Um, We're seeing that in children that have gone through um, significant traumas. We're seeing that in, patients that have um, progressive diseases, be it genetic or something else at least that's been acquired over time. It really is just a matter of identifying the, the source of where that impairment lies and then treating it accordingly. But oftentimes it requires ventilation support and a tracheostomy to help that.
0: As someone that works so closely with these kiddos, what are some of the biggest challenges you see for this demographic?
1: So I think that it's... Um, at least when, when families are faced with hearing that their child has respiratory failure, for what it's worth, it's a it's a tricky misnomer just in the sense that, you know, it's not as though their body's failing. It may just be one organ system that's failing or other things along those lines. And so from that standpoint, it's really just kind of helping families understand at least what the next steps are going to be to help overcome that and whether or not it's going to be a transient type of thing or if it's something that we're going to anticipate um, perhaps lifelong. And and I think in having those discussions, you certainly hear family goals, you certainly hear what's what they foresee for their child, at least in, in future needs. And so from that standpoint, decisions are made to help accommodate that. And then once the decision is made, it's oftentimes a period of time where you have a child that's either going from a sedated, perhaps very awkward appearing ICU type of environment, or they're receiving some type of non-invasive type of ventilation support through a face mask that may cover their nose and mouth that might be somewhat uncomfortable and and doesn't allow for some interactions to easily take place and so a lot of times what i have seen families encounter is when they go on through that first step it's a it's a mixture of wow now we have this this tube or we have this piece of equipment that our child is somewhat reliant on all of a sudden but they also get that luxury of seeing their face a little bit more freely and they see their child relax perhaps. And, and with that, there's there's mixed emotion that comes, I think, for many families. And so I think part of the hurdles are trying to explain that before the step is taken to make such a, a big jump as it relates to um, a type of care intervention. And so once that jump has happened and once families become accustomed to it, it's a big step in terms of getting them trained in terms of how to, you know, anticipate and troubleshoot and know what emergencies can be averted as we as we need to. And part of that is transitioning to the home environment as well and trying to see what we can do to mimic what's being done in the hospital to provide those safety measures so that those can be replicated at home. In terms of kids, I think it, families have a lot of questions. They they want to know if their child is going to maybe be able to, to vocalize and talk. They want to know if their child can eat and swallow. Um, there's a number of things in terms of what kind of activities they may be able to achieve, at least if get hooked up to a ventilator. All of those questions are, are really important questions to help address not only at that moment type of concern, but it's, it's good to talk about that, at least in the very early stages, even when deciding on whether or not this is the appropriate step to take.
0: Yeah, I can't even imagine being a parent sitting there and, you know, you're, you're probably saying these things to them and there's so much going through their head that it's hard to even picture it. So it's difficult to even share in a way that's going to connect until they see it. And then all these questions must come through of, you know, what's my child's life going to be like? What's my life going to be like? And I can't even, I can't even imagine what that would be like. And you did bring up someone will go to a facility like Cardinal Glennon, and it's a kind of a place to make sure that they're safe and stable, and then they are able to eventually go home. I would love to hear your perspective on what happens, you know, with a family and a child when they are ready to leave and go home. And what are some of the problems that come up for them when trying to acquire the nursing that they are eligible for through the state?
1: Children that have these types of conditions in many ways need some type of surveillance to assure that they're in a a safe kind of care environment, at least prior to going home. And so that may mean making sure that the, the house is set up appropriately for any type of equipment that's going to be necessary. It may also mean that we have awake and attentive caregivers 24 hours a day that are available to watch a child and make sure that there aren't some concerns. Um, and so from that standpoint, you know, it's, it's something that I always take as an honor because we're always somewhat invading ourselves into the lives of families. When we start asking questions about, well, what is your workday schedule like? What is your sleep schedule like? Can we be in your home to see what can we do to set up equipment um, and we're asking for home nurses to be there in the home with them and be that sort of presence in their day-to-day life that may not have been there previously. So we recognize that it's a, a somewhat invasive type of questioning and um, just involved process to get to a point where we feel like we can set up that safe environment. And so as part of that, we, we recognize that there are Home nursing needs that may be an eight-hour shift once a day for some people. It may be twenty-four hours a day for some people, depending on what their family caregiving environment looks like and what their support around them also looks like. It depends on what their community access to certain healthcare needs are. It uh, that determines that. So, so much goes into that. And um, as we do that, we we always try to help train all of our family caregivers to be. Essentially, another member of the medical team um, to be the primary caregiver for their children, greater than 50% of the time, at least, if not more. And to do that, there's a huge learning curve, and we expect it to be learned in a fairly limited amount of time prior to going home. And so, um, what sounds limited in time to me may sound like an eternity, though, for some families, in the sense that it's oftentimes weeks or months, at least, where that training is occurring. And once then they show that they can be very much ready in emergency contingency environments and other things like that, they're usually in a good place. So, so it's a process that oftentimes that transition home takes weeks to months because we need to get that training done for families. We need to also, in many ways, train the home nurses that are going to be involved in their care because oftentimes home nurses may be um, familiar with adult care needs or they may not have serve with a family that's involved in tracheostomy or ventilator type care situations. Um, and so there's a there's a learning curve for them as well. And then we have to make sure that we acquire the appropriate numbers of shifts, at least for those home nurses or um, certain equipment companies to be available uh, for what those family care needs might be.
0: And those families, if I know this correctly, they're usually not actually able to even go home until there is an agency set up in some cases.
1: Yeah, we we tend to do that because one of the things that I I think I've seen unfortunately is that when families go home perhaps short of what would be considered the maximal amount of resources, it's difficult to acquire those resources after the fact. It seems like it's easier to perhaps peel things back as opposed to add on later. So if a family goes home and they're receiving 56 hours of nursing care per week, they may find that they only need, you know, 24 of those hours and that's fine. You know, two, three weeks later, we can adjust accordingly, but some families go home and they realize, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm up half the night with my child and I'm not getting adequate sleep by the next day, or I'm having to go to work. And all of a sudden my work, at least responsibilities are, are being impacted. Those types of things, we then fall into a a difficult situation where sometimes it's difficult to add on those nursing hours after the fact. So it really is something where we do try to hedge on the side of getting as much as possible up front and then scale back as appropriate moving forward.
0: Yeah, I can just picture like, I have friends and I have family that have come home with their newborn that's completely healthy. And there's still this anxiety of like, am I doing things right? Is the baby breathing all of this? And then you add multiple machines that are pumping um, a trachostomy that has to be filled, you know, with this airway through the ventilator, all these things and trying to picture that. It's, it's scary. It's scary to think about having to go through that. And it's and these families are so amazing when you've seen them care for these children for years and years. You're like, wow, they are just as capable, if not more capable, than some nurses in some cases, just because they know the nuances of their child. And it's pretty amazing to see. And I think it is. It's hard, and and I can't even imagine what it would be like going through that.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, a transition, and, and you know, for what it's worth, we we do try to get families to the point where it's like they seem like they're absolutely 100% on top of things in the hospital environment right prior to to discharge. Um, and so we feel as though we get families feeling fairly confident, at least just in terms of what they will be able to provide in those emergency care scenarios. But it's not until you're home and really experiencing it, you know, in person just to to kind of get a true sense of what that next step may be. And so, um, so from that standpoint, it's been really helpful at least to you know, have families build networks around them, at least where they can rely on other families that have gone through similar situations. That um, they they learn so much, at least from those those circumstances, and um, they think of things that that we don't necessarily think of, at least on the medical side. So it's it's a, a nice network that's evolved, and the the concept of a complex medical you know care program or children with medical complexity is has always sort of been there, but it really hasn't been mapped out or made a clear demographic um, in the medical community and the literature and things like that, probably for the last 10 to 15 years. And so it's nice that we're starting to have that because I think we're able to build bigger networks and, you know, we're able to identify at least key questions that people would have in these types of scenarios. So families can go in with as much confidence as possible, but we recognize that as soon as you get home, it's something where we're ready to take that phone call that first night and we're crossing our fingers and and really kind of hoping that things go as well as they can. But we recognize that there's there's a big step there.
0: Absolutely. One thing that I wanted to talk about is we both know about this family CNA program in Colorado and it's really close to being available to families in your state in Missouri. And I would love to know, you know, what you think the value in enabling a parent to become a certified caregiver for their loved one would be?
1: Yeah. So in in many ways, when we do the training of our families, they are taking on a lot of the responsibilities that a certified nursing assistant or a home health aide would be taking part in at least if going into another patient's home. And so from that standpoint, we're asking this of families already. And I think that what becomes interesting is that you know, these families are essentially providing a service that are keeping children out of hospital care, out of the need for emergency room visits, other things along those lines, which is a huge benefit to our community at large because we're not occupying hospital space then. We're, we're not taking up Medicaid dollars or other things along those lines. And so, these families are providing these services. Granted, it's, it's services for their, their loved child and They would be doing it regardless, but it is the sort of thing that we are asking them to do high level nursing care or other things like that on a regular basis. And so the thought is, is that, you know, with certain certification and formalization of the process and having a nurse that would be then available to guide their, you know, care and be sort of a supervisory role to them, as we would see in other home health agencies, that becomes something that becomes very attractive to families. And it becomes attractive to us as medical caregivers because we we recognize that these families are stressed with the burdens of trying to take on just gaining wages through other kind of at least employment, and they oftentimes have to give up that employment to take on the responsibility of caring for their child. And so, if there's a way that that could be what it could be, it could be a gained skill set that they get. It could be an alternative skill set that they could use for future needs, but it becomes something that offsets some of that lost kind of employment wages that, you know, can be a real stress relief, at least for certain families. And it's because of something that we're already doing anyway. And so this is just a a good pathway to consider a step to aid in the process for families that are already stressed and um, perhaps give them a little bit of a, a, a little bit of breathing room.
0: Yeah. And you paint a really good picture of saying like they are providing a service. They're not being a parent. Of of course, they're being a parent because it's their child, but they are not doing what normal parents have to do for their child. They're going above and beyond as a caregiver. And, and also what you said really hit home with me too, is, you know, trying to keep a job. It's like, they have to see their pulmonologist. They have to see their gastrologist. They have to therapy visits three times a week. Even if you didn't have problems and the kiddo stayed stable, they have to call in to work for all these therapy that to sign off, they have to be there. And God forbid, a nurse doesn't show up or whatever else problems happen. It's so hard for a family member to keep a job. And so that really hit home for me when I was thinking about that while you were sharing that. So thank you for bringing that up. And I'd also like to, for you to be able to share like what a little bit about what a family member would be able to do if they were a trained CNA?
1: Sure. So um, some of the types of things that the families do, they, they take vital signs for instance. Uh, so they will help at least with an assessment from afar for a medical provider like me, at least in terms of understanding if there's been some weight loss or if there's been some changes with regards to a, a respiratory rate or um, if there's fevers, they, they are trained in ways of doing that, that, you know, is less subject to error. And so from that standpoint, that becomes helpful. They do um, certain things depending on the state that you're in. There's different um, regulations as it relates to that, but they may be able to start feedings at least through a a feeding tube or a gastrostomy tube. They will be able to help at least with certain things like dressing changes or um, problems at least that relate to skin conditions or pressure areas or other things like that. So that becomes quite helpful. Aside from that, it's, it's really a, a lot of sort of day-to-day care needs. So it would be helping with things like like changing and bathing and helping with with going to the bathroom and other circumstances like that. So the states are a little bit different in terms of how they see that in terms of what's appropriate, but for the most part, it's, it's some of those um, typical activities of daily living that really get addressed. And in many ways, we're asking families to go above and beyond that, at least with managing things like ventilators and tracheostomy changes and doing the tube change in and of itself. Those tend to be things that don't necessarily fall under the regulations of what a, a family CNA would be allowed to do. And so that said, there's a the large majority of what they do on the day to it, day. It would fall under that.
0: Can you talk a little bit about because, you know, part of, part of it is empowering and enabling these families to to be able to provide these services and another part of it is because of the nursing shortage. And there's families that have, you know, like you said, they could have 24 seven nursing and they might only be getting eight hours a day, or they might be getting zero. Can you talk a little bit about the nursing shortage?
1: Absolutely. So, so I think there's a, a handful of things that have gone into home nursing, at least the, the human power that's needed for that has, has reduced and, I think in part that's from some market trends, at least as it relates to where somebody that has a nursing license, where they're looking for employment, there's certainly some advantages of getting bonuses and working for an academic center that that may provide that compared to maybe a home nursing agency. And that's in part because I think home nursing agencies are are not reimbursed ideally for some of the services that they provide. And so some of the efforts that we make from an advocacy standpoint really relate to reimbursement of those those nursing hours and making sure that we attract really solid, um, experienced nurses to those environments where it's so desperately needed. But I think part of it also relates to some of the issues that have related to the COVID pandemic. And, you know, from that standpoint, where you're always asking for nurses or therapists or other, you know, people on the healthcare team to go into the home of various uh, children and families and with that, if there's a, a home nurse that may have some, you know, signs of illness that are consistent with COVID, they're automatically kind of, you know, not appropriate to go into that home. Or perhaps they are at risk themselves before this pandemic kind of came into play so that they, they become more reluctant to go into some of those homes, at least where there's a child with a ventilator. And that may put them uh, additionally at risk because it aerosolizes virus potentially. So there is sort of the the understandable need for home nurses to want to feel as though they protect themselves, where they really didn't have to face that as much before as it related to COVID. But I think that on top of that, too, I think COVID has has caused a a change in the, the mindset of many families in the sense of, you know, who absolutely needs to be here versus who would be potentially helpful to be here. And I think it's started to veer more towards, well, this isn't something that's an absolute. This is something that would be a nice perk if we had it, but maybe they don't have to be here because we are worried about COVID being spread or because of something else that's going on. Or maybe there's a nurse that is covering um, a home health shift for two different patients, and maybe they have nerves that relate to that. So all of those things have somewhat limited our pool of available home nurses to help us. And it's quite variable community to community. And so we have approached that with as, as open a, a concept as we can. And unfortunately, it just in some ways has led to a delay in transition to a home environment, or perhaps it's it's led to families becoming overwhelmed in a particular home environment and they need respite or they need something to help at least provide their care. And then we are always willing to offer that then once they, they get to hospital-based care. But that is a, a delicate balance, and it's something that it can easily be tipped with something like the COVID pandemic.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that in. I, I wasn't really putting all the the dots together of how COVID could really impact these families, but that absolutely makes sense, just having nurses go from different places, too many people in and out of the house, and the care still needs to be had. One, one thing I wanted to ask you, I mean, it just, you know, we kind of went through all of these issues that came through and and talked about how, what the family could do with the CNA. Uh, I would love if you could share a little bit about how this program that may be coming to Missouri pretty soon, how it would impact these families and these children and also how it could impact the community.
1: Yeah. So, so I think that should a program like this come to uh, Missouri. um, I think a number of our families would certainly qualify at least just in terms of, of what's necessary for their child. And so I think that it would offset at least some of the expenses that are necessary for a full, like just RN at least, uh, that has full licensure, at least to be available in a house because that number is limited relative to what may be available for a certified nursing assistant. And so if if we have six families, just as a, a theoretical example here, each of them have one child that has complex medical care needs, that warrants some nursing care. It would be nice if we would be able to have six certified nursing assistants that would be able to cover an eight-hour shift for each of them that would be supervised by one RN as opposed to needing six different RNs available in those homes. And so from that standpoint, that you can imagine would be some degree of cost savings without necessarily a fall off with regards to some of the nursing care that might be necessary. And so from that standpoint, there's there's added benefits to the community as it relates to just what the, the cost would be in terms of managing children with these care needs at home. Um, on top of that, I think that this would be something that we've talked about a little bit already, but it would be a, a major source of stress relief for those families that have had to give up employment or have had to at least seek help, at least from elsewhere, as it relates to just sort of the, the day-to-day care of their children. So if they're being in some ways employed and being paid for the work that's already being done, um, I think that that would offset a number of the stressors for many families um, that relate to this. And I I think that there are some families that even gain something where perhaps they they weren't employed before. And this is a new source of funding streams that they can use um, for their advantage as it relates to finding therapy opportunities, as it relates to just helping, at least with regards to respite, helping with some of their own day-to-day care, you know, just doing their own, having somebody to help with their laundry services or or other things along those lines that becomes quite helpful in these circumstances. And so I think that there's a, a tremendous amount of offset of stress that comes to families. In terms of, you know, me on the medical side and the hospitals, I think that this is something where if we can find opportunities where kids can get home safely and appropriately with programs in place that allow for that, without the need for a shortage in a nursing pool that's limited, I think that that uh, allows us to have delays and discharges essentially really reduced, and that helps get kids out of the hospital. And not only does that help from a cost perspective, that helps from a developmental perspective, at least for these kids, so that they're sleeping in environments that are comfortable for them and around family and in quieter environments without as much at least fanfare going on around them all the time. All of those things are positive benefits, but it also frees up hospital space. It, it allows for um, better care to be provided, at least for those that truly need it, as opposed to those that are simply waiting to go home, that are otherwise stable. And so it's, uh, it's good all around for, for many members of the community on the medical side, family side, and nursing side.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all this. And I just want to ask you one more thing and give you space to share if there's anything else you just feel inclined to share. But I just wanted to say like, what can we do as a community? What can anyone do just to support in any way? And is there anything else you just feel like you want to share while we're on here together?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, part of, part of what I've learned in terms of managing children with medical complexity and seeing the family dynamics over the years has has been the degree of social isolation that a lot of families find themselves in, in the context of helping manage their child's day-to-day care. And so it's not unusual for me to have families where I'm really the only in-person interaction that they may have in a two-month time span. Um, They may have people popping in or groceries dropped off, or they may have some other things going on in the interim. But I think that as a community, there's probably things that we can do better in terms of making sure that those kids and families that are in some ways isolated because of their medical care needs, that we're, that we're reaching out to them and we're finding ways to interact and, and trying to at least build the mental health at least that comes with probably all that social isolation. And so I, I think that that's something that I always ask of you know, people I know in the community in terms of helping things out. In terms of you know, kind of that whole aspect of mental health, I think that we are trying to build at least those resources. Because families of children with medical complexity, they really, in many ways, don't seek out their own health care as optimally as they should. And so from that standpoint, I always advocate for them to take care of themselves while also taking care of their child, which I think they would preferentially want to take care of their child first anyway. But it's important that if, if they were to get sick or if they were to have something happen to them that you know there would be problems at least that would come for that child down the road. So So I think that you know advocating as best we can through various organizations through you know various legislation, other things that allow for access to mental health for families like this and also to provide mental health services and pediatric visits and other things like that for families becomes very important. And so I, I, I try to stress that and we're trying to build at least mental health grants at least through our program at Cardinal Glennon. Aside from that, though, it's, it's really just kind of remaining aware of just what's evolving out there in terms of legislative bills that are on the floor of either state houses or federal kind of legislation or other things that might be out there that expand access for our children that have medical complexity. So it could be Making sure that telehealth doesn't go away because that's become something that's been so helpful in the context of COVID. It's been sort of a silver lining in the context of all of this. Um, it could be something as important as building a, a family CNA program in your state. It could be something as simple as just trying to expand, you know, Medicaid access to to those that may, you know, require more, at least in the context of, you know, what might seem like more needs at least in the home environment but it would be less than if they were having to go to the hospital. It's really kind of understanding those concepts and asking the community to come together and try to at least build a a circumstance where we can really allow these children to thrive at home.
0: Thank you so much and I just want to say that we really appreciate you spending time with us and for sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom with us and also just really painting a picture for, I mean, even for me who has been, you you said a lot of things that I didn't even think about in the past. And I know that's just going to continue to happen as we do this. And so I just want you to know that we're really grateful for everything that you do, whether it's with us or with anybody. You're just very appreciated. And thank you so much.
1: I appreciate your comments there. And and it's, it's an honor doing this. And and so I, I recognize that the work that I do is, is just, it's, it's negligible compared to the work that I know many of these families do for their children at home. So it's from that standpoint, I I will always do what I can to try to help everybody out. And I appreciate you taking on these discussions to uh, do your part in that as well. So.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Dr. Sobush. These families need your support, and it only takes a minute to become an advocate on our website, www.theunforgottenfamilies.com. Just click the Become an Advocate link on the upper right-hand corner, and we will inform you when it's time to take action in your state. We appreciate you listening, and we would love if you shared this episode with your friends and family. Thank you so much.